listening to a Rebel Media Podcast. John Doyle is a YouTuber and political commentator. You can watch his show on heckoffcomedy.com or YouTube. He also frequently appears as a guest commentator on the channel Slightly Offensive with Elijah Schaefer. Thanks for coming on, John. I've become a big fan of your YouTube channel. I see a lot of myself in you. How are you today? Excellent. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Very excited for this. I've been a long-time viewer of The Rebel. Good, good to hear. I, I, th I think you do a great job of talking to young men. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you know who Nelk is, but I think you're the political version of the Nelk boys. You know who they are? Of course, of course I do. And it's interesting that you say that because uh, I, I've heard that before. And as a result, my roommate and I were thinking about making a podcast specifically to try to like infiltrate that sort of online bro culture. And it would be called Locker Room Talk for obvious reasons. And, you know, it'd just be like guys bantering, but kind of tied back to a more fundamentally right wing direction, which I would argue is like the logical result of men being allowed to be masculine. Um, and, and the wake up call for that was they were doing a meetup, the Nelk Boys in Texas. Mm -hmm. They announced it with like, 10 hours notice. And so we went just to see, you know, how many people would show up. And there were like 3000 young men there with no direction, all like looking to get high and drunk and see if they could hook up with some girl. And I was just thinking to myself, imagine if we could channel this energy into something productive for the future of the country. Thus, Locker Room Talk was born as an idea. For sure. And uh, put me on the short list for that show. I'd, uh, <laughs> I, this is my theory for the last year. We need to combine that, that sort of feeling, the bro culture, and normalize it with politics just so we can get people having these conversations. And one of the videos I watched of yours recently was about demoralization, um, particularly, I imagine, of the youth. And I just want to show a clip from one of your latest videos here and uh, get you to explain it in a bit of further detail. So can we go ahead and play that, Justin? The point is that in order to beat you, they have to demoralize you. And in order to demoralize you, they need you constantly plugged in, constantly consuming the propaganda, the fake news, glued to the screens, isolated, locked down. And at a certain point, literally just going outside is a political strategy because it will make you happier and it will make you more effective in the long run. That's right, gamers. Donkey Kong is a political strategy. And this doesn't mean just go crazy, Pleasure Island mode, blow off everything just to go have fun. But it does mean that there is something to be said about taking a few hours every week and just going and doing something that you really enjoy. Not just mindlessly navigating through the internet in the name of relaxation, but like really going out there with the boys and doing something epic. It might sound redundant, but we are the future. And if we're not doing well, if the boys are down bad, then we can't expect the future to be bright or for us to be successful. John, I want you to explain to the viewers who or what is doing the demoralizing in your opinion? Uh, I think that there's basically a collective, I guess you'd say, I don't wanna say coalition, but that's probably the best way to describe it of people who occupy the same fundamental narrative and agenda, but as far as where they physically occupy it would be in the media, uh, the banks, the, the mega corporations, the power structures in this country explicitly as far as how government works. And uh, I think that they're all basically working in collaboration under the same narrative to demoralize people into submission. And that's kind of what I was getting at there with, uh, you know, Donkey Kong is a political strategy because I was at an arcade and I was playing Donkey Kong, which I'm very skilled at. And I posted something on my Instagram story about it, like, yo, who thinks I could set the high score? And someone responded and they were like, John, President Trump just had the election stolen. The country's on fire and you're playing Donkey Kong? And I'm like, yeah, you're fucking right I'm playing Donkey Kong. Like, what do you want me to do, like be depressed? If I'm depressed, I'm not gonna wanna do anything. I need to know that I'm fighting for something. 
And if that something can't even be Donkey Kong, then what's the point? And so like even as far as people getting locked in their houses, we know that deficiency in vitamin D is, is indicative of depression or can lead to depression and often does. It's just like being totally locked down and, and glued in uh, to screens all the time, consuming constant information does over time demoralize you. And so there's something to be said about literally, which is kind of a uh, goes against what our business model would be. But we need people to disconnect from time to time and just go outside and like participate in their communities. So that's what I was trying to kind of convey to the audience. But that's a somewhat hyperbolic monologue. <laughs> What's an example you can point to um, where it's targeted demoralization, in your opinion? I know you've mentioned a few in the videos, but just for the viewers, what's an example that you think of targeted demoralization, let's say against uh, younger people, maybe 17 to 22 years old? I think that TikTok and Instagram are probably the quintessential examples. And Instagram like co-opted the format of TikTok on its own thing called like Reels now. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you can go on like the Explore page and like everything in my Explore uh, page is like all like political and there's some like financial stuff in there. But everybody's Explore page invariably will have videos of young girls, mm -hmm. you know, twerking or doing like very suggestive dances, wearing revealing clothing. And that acts as a trigger for a lot of young men to then go and like watch pornography or to, you know, go to her page and basically like lust after these e-women. And so I think that demoralizes, everyone knows how it demoralizes women because we've long been having the conversation about female body standards and them feeling as though they have to compete with her. That's an important conversation. I tend to sympathize more with the young boys, which is like them looking at this like ideal woman and then being reminded of uh, their inability to sort of interact with a woman of that caliber, so to speak, just because men tend to be much more insecure and antisocial now than probably 30 years ago. And I think this can be reflected throughout the culture, but also just through like data. Like if you look at the proportion of men who are just like not having sex now compared to 30 years ago, uh, incel culture, all of that stuff. And so I think that like putting that in people's faces, knowing that it's for profit to either get them to subscribe to the girl or to go get ad revenue from pornography websites. It, it's like a reminder. Cause like when you're watching pornography, this is a point that I made in the first video, you know that like that's not you and ideally you would you would like to be the guy in the video but it's almost like a reminder to you subconsciously like you're there sitting in your bedroom and you know this guy's with the girl or something like that because you know that it's like not you doing it and uh, i think that sort of makes men feel inadequate and uh as though they aren't really capable of fulfilling their basic biological imperatives i definitely agree and i do have a problem with these forms of content we'll call them which yeah. is a lot of the times, it's a it's it can be a thirty five year old woman uh, just standing there snapping and changing her clothes, and I wonder why uh, an adult woman got to this point. But I digress. I think that's a good segue to corporate wokeism, especially because it always pops up on these platforms. You see all the trends, everybody participating in uh, the black square, for example, and it it's affecting us and it's being used in ways that have never been used before, I feel like. And there's a great montage at the start of one of your videos that I recall and that I marked down for us to show right here. Uh, let's go ahead and play this and we'll talk about it after. Cola, after an internal memo showed diversity training where employees were told to be, quote, less white. It's part of a company racism training program. People taking part are given advice on how to be less white, less arrogant, less, uh, less certain, less defensive, and less arrogant. A spokesperson for Coke said it's just part of training meant to create a, quote, inclusive workplace. 
I do. So I think there's a lot of learning that's taking place and a lot of awareness that is uh, happening. I wasn't as aware seven years ago when I had my son about the racist images in a lot of Dr. Seuss's children's books. Story everybody's talking about this morning, that big rebrand of Mr. Potato Head, the classic children's toy now has a gender neutral name and... Damn Potato Head, always ruining everything. It's so funny to me. <laughs> John, uh, I just did a video about Coca-Cola rescinding their diversity initiatives. There's been Goodyear, there's been Red Bull. Why, what, it turns out that most of these companies have bad results, a lot of them, but why do some companies go all in on this? It seems like even in some cases, they're excusing the money for the ideology. Do you have any explanation why they go quote unquote all in on this sort of stuff? Yeah, I think it can, probably be best explained. Well, first, I think we have to start with uh, the sort of, I guess you'd say, parasocial relationship that the right has had with free market capitalism for a long time, maybe about 40 years. And we often forget that this isn't just like solidified under right-wing thought. This, these were debates that were had about whether we wanted protectionism or free trade or total free markets versus regulation. Um, and so now we're at a place where for the last 40 years, we've basically been, I don't want to say shilling, but shilling for the free market. And now it's turning out to uh, result in these mega corporations who are serving against the interests of the American people. And we're pretty confused as to why that's happening. And so if you think about orthodox free market theory, if, if someone is selling uh, car parts or maybe even like they have a lemonade stand and you go to purchase lemonade and then the person selling the lemonade is like, well, you have to pay 10 cents more because you're white or here, here's this pamphlet about how you're genetically inferior. You're probably not going to patronize that lemonade stand anymore. But now what we have is such a consolidation of these corporations and then also what's referred to as the managerial class. So you don't necessarily have bosses and employees anymore. You have all these people occupying middle management whose job is basically to make sure that other people are doing their jobs. And so that presents the opportunity for these sort of mediocre people, you know, hovering around 110 to 125 IQ to come in and be like, well, this is what I learned in my humanities degree. And so this is what we're going to do now. And this is something that uh, I don't want to say baby boomers, but baby boomers tend to tend to miss, which is that there's always this kind of, oh, well, they're in college right now and they think they're so woke. Well, wait until they get into the real world. And it's like, okay, well, when they get into the real world, they're going to be hired in these positions and they're going to be the ones making the decisions that will ultimately affect the consumers and the whole culture, whether it's with Potato Head or with Coca-Cola or with any one of these examples that we've seen. And I think a good example would even be right-wing content creators. And this is kind of what woke me up to this is like, wait a minute, I'm not making money, but I still care about what I'm doing. I wonder if that translates into companies because, you know, the right always says, well, corporations are just people, right? Well, what if the people care more about sending a message and, and uh, seeing like a tangible effect in the culture as opposed to like their profits? Like if Facebook or Coca-Cola, their profits are down 2%, but they get like an actual, you know, result that they're looking to see ideologically within the culture, are they really going to care that much? Probably not. And I think we're seeing the results of that. You want to just define what you mean by baby boomer? It, it comes up a lot in your videos, and I think if people don't follow you, they're not going to know what you mean by that. The baby boomers uh, would be, I think, 1945 to 1965, and once you get on either border, it becomes more of a cultural thing. Uh, so my dad was 65, so maybe he's not exactly a boomer, but culturally sometimes he would be be a boomer. Boomer, Being a baby boomer, really, like my, my sister even, she's 20. Four. She sometimes is a boomer because that which defines the boomer is simply an inability to understand that things have changed. 
And so even some of these libertarian types who still think we're stuck in the Ron Paul revolution, they just can't understand that the country has changed and the culture has changed. And that's really like what defines the boomer. So my next question was going to be, how do we fight against corporate wokeism? Because if there's all these people in mid middle management and people are destined to go there to play devil's advocate, how are we going to prevent ourselves, let's say, from following falling into this trap where we're sort of we're trying to change a, a corporate uh, landscape or environment into exactly what we see fit? And I, and I feel like it used to be just about profits over everything, but now we're uh, YouTube is choosing. Uh, ideology over profits, Microsoft, everybody's doing this. How do we fight against it? So, and a lot of people even on my channel aren't really comfortable with this answer um, because the right or the dialogue on the right has been so consumed with this idea of small government. Um, let private businesses do what they want. But like, here's the thing. We know that we don't have any representation left in the culture. And we know that we can't necessarily expect every person working for these companies to really make a stand because they'll get fired and then like what, that you want them to go down and die on this hill and then not be able to provide for their families? Of course not. The way I see it is that we only have, I used to estimate about 10 to 15 years before things would basically be irreparable. Now I'm thinking more like seven. Uh, the only institution that we could occupy within the appropriate time frame, and then also as far as how easy it is, would be government. We don't have time to take back Hollywood or education. We don't have time to take back corporations and convince them that what they're doing is ultimately destructive to the free markets that foster them. And so what we could do, though, is win elections for the time being. Uh, maybe not federal anymore, but you could win state elections. Like we control like what in America, 26 state governments, but conservatives are still complaining about their freedoms and everything. It's like you have the power to stop that under the 10th Amendment. Um, in terms of like COVID restrictions. But even with this, like if you were to say, raise taxes specifically on businesses who are propagating this like neo-Marxist woke propaganda, that would eventually, I think, incentivize them to at least tone it down. And so then this gets into the, are we ready to wield power effectively as conservatives and abandon this, this naive sophomoric idea of the power vacuum for the power vacuum's sake, which inexorably is filled with forces that ultimately want to eliminate your representation in that vacuum or even on the sign lines of it? Or do we want to uh, basically sit idly by and, and allow the destruction of our country to happen through this sort of corporate consolidation of this like homogenous narrative of woke. And if you deviate, you can't even patronize these businesses anymore. You can't attend the schools anymore. They literally, to, you, to borrow our term from our friends on the left, will other you in society to where you eventually will have to conform. And even if you don't conform, who cares? You're 1%. You have no power left. Do you, you're with a pretty tight-knit group down there. Do you guys ever, I was thinking about this the reason I ask on the way into work this morning, do you ever consider the idea of maybe you should start your own political movement as a different way to, to use your influence? I mean, what, what you're saying is essentially we need to start taking things into our own hands and run for government, and that way we can affect real change. I've thought about this, and, and when I think about the people I'm criticizing in the government, and I criticize them for not being that smart, I ask myself, what's, the, what's actually stopping me from doing the work? Do you ever get that feeling? Oh, all the time. I, I think even if I'm correct, in my state, Greg Abbott has a bill on his desk right now. I'm not sure if it passed in the Senate, but even if it did, I'm, I'm sure it would be the same. They have these bills on their desks. And if he signed this bill, it would allow constitutional carry in Texas, which would be one of the biggest victories for gun rights in, in the last several decades, I think. 
there's so much inefficiency. And, you know, a lot of people like to point to, well, Occam's razor. It's not that they're malicious. It's that they're stupid. It's like, no, because if you assume, and I would even argue that there's more stupidity on the left than the right, but if you assume there's roughly an equal distribution on both sides, why is it that the left is so much more capable of wielding power than the right? I think it's because the right basically exists as a, as a money vacuum to basically sell hope to the American people and then not, not actually enact real change. So yeah, local government uh, is something that I think is often overlooked. As far as myself starting some sort of movement, I don't think that I uh, right now have the network or the ambience to do that. I think that people <laughs> are hesitant to take young people seriously because there's sort of this will like, well, he's because especially adults, they either they react one of two ways. There's very little middle ground. They either, oh, he gives me hope for the future or what does this kid know? He's just a punk. And so it's kind of like, you know, the reality of our situation. But maybe uh, a few years down the road. I encourage you to move to Canada, my friend. There is no age too young for a member of parliament here because there's so many seats for people to wield. There, there's people who've been elected at 22 here um, in the last couple of elections. I want to transition to logical fallacies because one I see in a lot of your streeter videos and that I've experienced myself doing the same sort of thing is the appeal to authority. And we're seeing that a lot these days, specifically with, with medicine and doctors. And there's a great example of it. While it's not about that sort of thing, it's a great example of an appeal to authority. Uh, let's go ahead and play that clip, please, Justin. Yeah, there are. What is, is that like just their... Firefighters. Is that just because, um, like, you think that they're going to help fight fires better? Or is there something like specifically with them cutting your jobs or something like that? Because both of my sons are firefighters, so there you have it. Well, I understand that, but like, why would that compel you to support Biden over like Trump, them being firefighters? Support the pussy grabber? No, I'm not doing it. But what does that have to do with fighting fires? I am supporting yeah. my whole family. I'm here support uh, to represent my whole family. Mm -hmm to support Biden-Harris. Immigrants, GBLTQ, um, women, a lot of strong women. So what are you guys doing? I'm just asking, I'm just wondering what that has to do with fighting fires. Their union is supporting Biden and yeah, Harris. Yeah, I was just wondering why, like over Trump, as a, a firefighting union. Because they know what's right. They know who to support. With fighting fires or just in general? It's the union. It's the union that is fight, uh, that is supporting Biden, Harris. It's not supposed to be like a gotcha question. I'm just wondering, you know, like the UAW well, might go one how way. How much or... more do I have to explain it to you? Oh, probably a lot. I'm not really getting it. Well, then take a hike. Okay. She called me a dumbass. The GLBTQ, John. It was Don't such you understand? A question, and she she literally could not understand what I was asking. Like she was just looking. Ever I walked up it's to the her. It's the union's dumbass. Yeah, I wasn't even wearing any like you know like space wars or anything political. She was just looking for a fight. Uh, I, I want to ask, are you seeing this a lot today with the, the doctors and the nurses? I mean, I see, I get these emails that are like, why can't you listen to the doctors? You're not a virologist, you're killing people. What is this? And this woman, of course, is trying to say that because firefighters, and she kind of says it, because firefighters are voting for Biden and Harris, therefore, I trust their opinion and they're so smart and better than me that they know what's right and I don't need an actual reason to, to support Biden or Harris so long as this union... Uh, <laughs> is supporting that yeah. is yeah, where is it, all this coming from is it just easier to uh yeah. to appeal to somebody who's not you for your opinions literally and, and that's what's so beautiful about the appeal to authority is it's like 
And that's what's kind of tricky about it, too, is instead of thinking about something and whether or not it's true, you just default to this expert or person, you know, this lab coat says it's true. Therefore, it must be true, which, of course, is fallacious because it might actually not be true. But um, I think this this even stems back to what defines leftism. A lot of people think that, like, you know, left versus right is just a matter of, you know, agreeing, disagreeing. There's actually a pretty large biological component to it. And uh, a lot of it is based on someone's sense of themselves. And there was a, a good philosopher who actually theorized that leftism is basically um, a concoction of insecurity and over-socialization. So you think about like even markets, for example, versus like, um, like a leftist system of economics. If we're conservatives, we know that we're going to have to compete to make money. But we're okay with doing that because we feel as though we'd probably be held back if everything were like distributed equally. Leftism is the opposite. They, they feel inadequate. They feel insecure. They're spiritually ill, which is why you look at the mugshots of the people who are fighting uh, the most intensely for this cause, the Antifa people, they all look like they are taking SSRIs and they have mental disorders. And this is not said to disparage them. It's just said to kind of analyze the, the mental state that you have to be in to support these policies and to dedicate yourself to these movements. And so if you are that person, you are insecure, uh, you're not very sure of yourself, you're not confident, naturally it would make sense that you default to what other people are saying, whether that's the media narratives, whether that's the, the figures that are held up like Fauci, Bill Gates. Well, they said it, therefore it must be true. It is, it is abdicating the responsibility that you have in a free society to think for yourself to other people. And then what you provide is sort of the militancy, like, well, I'm going to enforce this. You're killing my grandma and stuff like that. And, uh, it's just, it's very easy to take advantage of those types of people. And I think they've done that very effectively. What I have a big problem with is the idea that there's a lack of bias in these fields, whether it's like we said, the doctors or CNN or choose your firefighters even. I'm sure there's probably a lot of right-wing firefighters. Where do we go to find the last bastion of unbiased people? Is Does that exist? Is it, Can we trust judges at this point? Is, is there a place where we can look to where people are still going to be impartial in your opinion? No. Uh, I thought it was the military. That was the last thing that I felt that, as though I could be proud of in this country. And then that got compromised. So right now I see no institution or uh, even coalition of people in this country who I would trust other than, you know, my own people. But uh, yeah, things are things are pretty bad. <laughs> and it's, I could be honest on this channel. If it were on my channel, I'd be like, we're going to make it. But I can be totally honest. <laughs> here. Like, I don't have to rally your troops. So no, it's, it's not looking good. Along the same lines, um, one of the I love these four person debates that are on slightly offensive where it has everybody in the corner. Um, a lot of laughs and lots of thinking going on there. Uh, one I want to reference is the one where you guys talk about something called blue and on. And I want to hammer you down and get you to tell me if this is a real thing or not. Let's play that clip, Justin. If you're not familiar with this, this is actually a loosely organized group of Democrat voters. We've also seen this as recently uh, even inspired terrorism at the Capitol building when a Nation of Islam follower um, actually ended up killing a Capitol uh, police officer. So this actually leads to terrorism. This is a very dangerous group of Democrats, politicians and media personalities who spread left-wing conspiracy theories such as the Russia hoax, the Ukraine hoax, Brett Kavanaugh. But it's a lot worse, John, I'm telling you. This is, gets a lot worse, which is why we're talking about this today. They've even done things things like spread the fact that obesity is healthy. They've also spread, I know, I know, that fatness is good. And on top of that, which we're gonna find out, that's actually killed more people than COVID, that lie, right? They've killed more people than the virus in the United States, and I'll explain why. 
But also, too, they've also spread the lie that, you know, we have the most popular president in history. Fit at any weight, John, I believe is the uh, the term, or fat and healthy, I believe is the other term. Are we, yes. is this a real thing, or are we grouping together the DNC or far-left sycophants in a hilarious meme? So, Blue Anon was something that Elijah just threw at me. I had never heard of it before, but I think it's, it's basically true, whether that's... Uh, I remember even saying this in my videos like a few years ago that like, you know, the it's Mueller time, you know, the whole <laughs> meme of like he's going to come in. That was like the equivalent of like Q on the right, like just trust the plan, you know, genius prosecutor, whole family's going to be in prison. And if you ask them about that, even the people who were posting the hardest about it on Facebook, if you ask them about that now, they just won't even acknowledge it. It's like totally memory hold or even with uh, the, the, you had Russiagate, you had the Ukraine thing, you know, he's allied with both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, disregard the geopolitical inconsistency there. It's just like these people literally cannot think for themselves. And I don't, honestly, I don't think that that's abnormal. I don't even think that's something necessarily bad. I think that uh, that's something that we need to kind of acknowledge and, and work with because we tend to think that everyone wants to read the news as much as we do, or everyone wants to like really think about this stuff as much as we do. But it's like people fundamentally, I don't think have agency. I think they just like to perhaps naively think that they can turn on and just trust what the screen people are telling them. And so the problem is that our screen people are lying uh, to achieve a nefarious agenda. So yeah, and that's the other thing too, you know, the real black pill about when this is all over and we win is that you're gonna have these same types of people saying, yeah, you know, I guess the 2020s were kind of crazy, but you know, I always thought it was all kind of crazy. Like they're literally not going to be able to understand how this is different because they're just following exactly what is being parroted to them by these talking heads. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna mention Jussie Smollett and Justice Kavanaugh, and I was gonna ask you yep. how, why is it so much easier to jump onto these ideas? Is it just because it's presented in front of them more often than than the other side of the story? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And they think that those are their allies and then then we are their enemies. And so it's a very simple kind of like, okay, I recognize that, you know, Anderson Cooper and and Don, John Miller or not John Miller, that's the Blaze guy, Don Lemon. It's kind of funny. They kind of look alike. <laughs> Don Lemon, <laughs> my friend. And so I'm going to just listen to what he says. And then it's also like the especially in school, because I just got out of high school a few years ago. It's like, this is this is like the narrative and the teachers in agreement. And so to be uh, the dissenting voice requires a level of courage that, you know, is, is noble, but really has never been expected before, at least in recent society in America. And then it's like the people in the middle who don't really have an interest in politics, they're apolitical, give or take one or two topics. Those are the people whose minds are going to be shifted and then eventually they hear this thing, you know, over and over again in their schools and then in the media and that just eventually will crystallize as the truth. And then if anybody dissents against that, they're like, well, what are you talking about? You're just you're just incorrect. It's not even worth debating. It's settled. The science is settled. <laughs> yeah, it, it happens that way all the time. I know so much what I'm talking about that I can't give you an example and I can't explain my position. That's one of my favorite things about your videos is calling the people out for not being able to even articulate their opinion even though they're so sure about it you say this is the uh this is the state of discourse with white women we must end them now that's a good point to go oh go ahead on white women it's true
Okay, John, I asked Bryce and great, by the way, we're behind the paywall. I always encourage eating, drinking, shirtlessness, only the male guests. And I want to get into this right now. I asked Bryce and Gray the same question. What your take on is on LGBT and Christianity. Um, and I want to, it, it's from the same clip that I asked Bryce about actually, from one of those slightly offensive debates, um, transgenderism and LGBTQ. Uh, let's go ahead and roll that. Place in the New Testament that really touches on the relationship of Christians to government. And what does it say? It says they should pray for the, the people in leadership so that they may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. So what does that mean? It means that we should be working on electing a government that allows people to practice whatever religion they want and to live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. And the only way that we can do that is by creating a broad coalition of voters who win elections. That's what we should be talking about first and foremost is how we win elections. Um, I'm, before we go, I'm going to go to John because John was John was sort of laughing during that. And so why are you laughing? I was I was humored by uh, the biblical substantiation for having more gay people in government. I just thought that was kind of funny. It's a great clip, John. I want to know, is Christianity being watered down or the beliefs being watered down to be more mainstream or to appeal to a wider audience? Oh, unequivocally. And uh, yeah, as far as your first question, homosexuality and Christianity are fundamentally incompatible. And what that woman was trying to pass off is this very common leftist understanding of Christianity, which is that Jesus was like basically this hippie who just told us to like be vaguely nice to each other. And it's like, once you get past Sunday school Jesus, actual Jesus was like not that nice. And, you know, we shouldn't expect him to be. But um, yeah, I mean, even even oh, I guess I'll, I'll keep going on the first part. Um, and this is even prophesied in the Bible, too, that like, not to say that we're in the end times, but as they approach, the, the those who claim to be preaching uh, the word of God will start, you know, widening that, that, I guess, net sort of include things that are fundamentally against that, which would be homosexuality and all other types of uh, adjacent deviancy. And so, yeah, I think that Christianity has lost a lot of footing in the culture. And I think that there are some people who think that the way to get that back is by compromising on what it actually is. I think that's misguided and perhaps even uh, malicious. So I think that uh, there's there's a lot of people who are kind of hungry for that that authentic Christianity to return. And I think that that would be what is necessary for the country to really make a comeback on a wide scale. I think people are hungry for it all across the board, especially in politics. I, when I look at our politicians now, uh, the ones that claim to be Republican or conservative up here, uh, they don't really stand for much. They uh, Even what they said they stood for two years ago, five years ago, we can go back to pre-Trump eras. They don't really stand for anything that I can see. I mean, there are low-hanging fruits like China, but even things like censorship. I mean, how long has Ted Cruz been saying we have to do something about censorship and I'm going to be the one who stops it? How many times did Trump say it? So I think across the board, not just in Christianity, in terms of people actually sticking up for what they believe in and sticking to their guns, even when it may be coming with a Twitter ban or if it comes with a demonetization, people still want to see people stand up for what they believe in. Because as soon as you start changing, that's when people start thinking you're weak. And I'm, uh, I'm calling out you, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> I want to transition to censorship. Um, and how it pertains to your online presence and your social media. Do you have a strategy with how you combat uh, online censorship or deranking or delisting? And remember, you're on the paywall, so you can reveal mm -hmm. your secrets. Uh, not necessarily in terms of censorship. 
um, I'm, I'm pretty careful with what I say. And I think we have to be if we're going to be on this platform. I think that I sort of have this like utilitarian view where if I can, you know, red pill 10,000 people on this topic, is it really worth like getting banned instantly mm. for talking about this other topic? I don't think so. Um, Do you think we should of, be driving people directly to websites more? Like I, I, it's sort of like a 2005 view I have of things where I'm waking up or I'm, I'm coming home from school and I'm going directly to websites instead of just social media feeds. Yeah. Um, I've never done that, but I think that's a good idea. I don't know if, if they would catch on to that. That's probably a good way to do it without being on the radar in terms of like, even your, like I direct people to my website, but there's not like a things on there that are much more controversial than, than what I talk about. But I've always had, uh, what I refer to as the gateway drug strategy. And this is an epiphany I had in, uh, in Starbucks. Actually, I was working on research for a video on like the UN's declaration of human rights. And I just kind of thought to myself, like, no one's ever going to send this video out. Like, dude, you need to see what this kid has to say about this. And then I realized people watch Ben Shapiro owned compilations, not because they want to take notes and learn something, but because they're entertaining. That is the key. You need to make entertaining content that is vaguely political and that's going to blow up. See if you can retain 10% of those people. And that's how you grow a channel. And that's kind of what I figured out. And so the first one that I did was, uh, after I had that epiphany, I called my buddy and I was like, hey, do you want to bring a Glock into Whole Foods and act gay? He's like, sure. So that's like what we did to see that. how people react. Yeah. And so that video got like a couple million views. And then my channel had enough subscribers to be self-sustaining. Same thing at the protests. Like I enjoy talking to people. I'm always very polite. Uh, but as far as, you know, what I really care about, that's not really it. And so that I do every now and then when I have the opportunity or when I feel inclined because I know it's going to do well and, you know, bring that 10% of viewers uh, around for every other video where we talk about more substantive and important things. And so that's, that's proved to be pretty effective, I think. You need to write down more owning videos. Literally, yes. More owning. There's a reason. And even I remember people were uh, posting my, my videos that I did um, – in the 2020 election of like, you know, owning these libs at protests. And they were like, owning the libs compilations are back. Nature is healing. And it's like, yes, they are back. I try to invite uh, a lot of the, the politicians, even mayors and, and stuff like that on to talk to me. They don't want to do it. They don't, the idea of actually defending one's views or even explaining, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, there was a protest with two elected politicians uh, east of here, about an hour and a half east. And politicians were ticketed, COVID violations, and the mayor told them to stay the fuck home and because our town doesn't want you. And then there's another mayor west, about an hour west of where we are in Toronto, who has rolled out a race-specific vaccine program. If you're non-white, then you can get a vaccine first. Nobody wants to talk about this. They can't even respond in an email uh, format. So it's a really sad state of affairs, but I'm triple underlining more owning. So hopefully we True. can get that done. I want to ask you as a final question, which politicians that you do you actually like or support, if any, that exist in office right now? I like Ron DeSantis. I like, uh, I still like Trump. Unbelievable. Um, it's hard these days, isn't it? Maybe Rand Paul. And... That's probably going to be about it, yeah. It's a it's a difficult task these days. Just I mean, you got to take the good with the bad, but these days, uh, the people who are actually standing up, like we've discussed, and fighting for what they believe in, is 
forever dwindling. I want to give you the last word, and you're a very smart guy. Suggest a book for me to read, and I will buy it and read it. Any particular topic? I wanted to ask Michael Knowles about a Christopher Columbus book, but he won't respond to my DMs. <laughs> Too cool for Revel. Wow. Uh, I don't. I don't have any books on Columbus. Um, oh man. What about free I, markets? You're talking a lot about that. Well, I would recommend books that would probably criticize purely free markets. But okay, so I will say, um, there's what is it called? Ian Fletching. I think it's it's literally called Free Trade Doesn't Work. Uh, what should replace it and why? And it's a critique of basically the free trade policy that has bankrupted uh, America specifically and, and transferred a lot of wealth to countries like China. Um, and it makes a lot of really compelling arguments. Like, you know, we sort of have this fixation, like we talked about earlier, of like America was built by free trade. It's like, that's actually not true. America was built by protectionism. Virtually every founding father or American figure who's on Mount Rushmore was a protectionist. And that's how Japan rebuilt their wealth after World War II is like through things like protectionism. Um, but as far as what I would generally recommend, I've been reading a lot of uh, post-liberal uh, books, sort of preparing for what's to come, since I think liberalism is basically proved to be um, insolvent. So that would be like Patrick Deenan, Why Liberalism Failed, uh, James Burnham is Good, um, Suicide of the West. That's an older one, too. That was like 1964. Um, Christopher Lash, I think. Uh, yeah, there's a lot that, that you could read. I have a book list, too, on my website that you could check out if you're interested. But I certainly will. And just for anyone else watching, that's a list of books to burn, you guys. So John Doyle, heckoffcommy.com is the website and the show. You can see him on Slightly Offensive, like I said. Any final words for audience, John? Keep the head up, boys. We're going we're gonna to make it. It's going to get worse, but we will make it. For the boys, I hope we both can do something with Nelk. Um, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, best of luck for everything moving forward. And everybody go to his website, heckoffcommy.com. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you for having me.